This is Fashion in Focus, the weekly New Zealand fashion podcast covering our creative world from a unique perspective. My name is India Leishman. And I'm Murray Bevan. And every week, we'll connect you with the leading designers, editors, influencers, and stylists from all over the world. If you love fashion, this is the podcast for you. To celebrate Showroom 22's 18th birthday, I decided we need to go big on this podcast. In almost two decades of working with brands and creatives from around the world, few can hold a candle to today's guest. Once the host of seminal daily fashion show Fashion File, aired by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation for 30 years, he steered the ship for 17 of those years, bringing fashion to millions of viewers around the world and inspiring and informing not only fashion fans at home, but also sparking a love of fashion in some of the world's biggest designer names. This New Zealand-born intellect who started university studies at the tender age of 15 has since held the position of editor-at-large for CondéNastStyle.com and has written for countless fashion titles, plus authored or contributed to books celebrating the likes of Versace, Alexander McQueen, Dries Van Noten, Guido, Dior, and Bottega Veneta. He's the man everyone wants to see front row at their show, and his role as editor-at-large for the business of fashion, which he holds today, has positioned him as one of global fashion's most powerful players. It is an honor and a privilege to welcome today's guest, Mr. Tim Blanks, to Fashion in Focus. Thank you, Murray. Hi. That's very, that's very sweet of you, and, can, and happy birthday on the 18th anniversary, I remember, when you started. Yeah, back in 2002, renting yeah. an office month by month. Yeah. Yeah. You must have been about 15 yourself when you launched the business. Uh, 22, hence the name. Um, So Tim, you and I have been exchanging a couple of little notes and questions and I don't really know where to start. There's just so many amazing things to talk to you about today. And uh, our chat... I think it's so so interesting that we were going to do this a while ago and if we had done it a while ago, imagine how different the conversation would have been. Absolutely. Absolutely. Topic on everybody's minds at the moment. Yeah. So, Tim, you're the editor-at-large for Business of Fashion, Mm -hmm. uh, and your role has taken you all over the world, including regular trips back to New Zealand, where you were born. Give us a bit of a, just an overview of your your current role as it sits today uh, as at the Business of Fashion, Uh, what you, what you achieve there, what drives you, and... uh, kind of an overarching detail, I suppose, of, of what Mr. Tim Blanks does day to day, week to week. <laughs> oh, lotus eating. Um, I, uh, I, at the business, I think the business of fashion was, um, if I, I was at style.com for 10 years, which was um, a very kind of consumer facing, customer facing, I'm, I'm, mm. I'm beginning as part of the, in the aftermath of this crisis, I feel like the word consumer needs to be retired because um, consuming is what's got us to where we are. And customer seems like a more gentle um, word that suggests a relationship, you know, more than a sort of, um, more than just the endless consumption. Uh, I, um, sell.com was very, was, Actually, first of all, what I would say is I've been extremely lucky from never, ever, never really having an ambitious bone in my body. I always seem to have been, and also not being remotely 
technologically inclined, I al- al- always seem to have been at a sort of tipping point for the fashion mm. industry. Even even being in the fashion industry was a complete accident. Um, I, I, when I was living in Toronto, I, uh, I, I, I'd been working in an animated film company. Um, I was working on um, doing colors for the costumes and things like Strawberry Shortcake and Inspector Gadget. <laughs> and, um, that, that was that was that was a, that was a, that was a kind of niche, a, a little explored niche in my past. And when I left that job, I uh, I just sort of drifted into freelance freelance writing to support myself. And I did a lot of freelance writing for a lot of different magazines. And I was writing about everything. I was writing about you know tennis academies and legal things and and um, you know doing a little bit of travel writing, a little bit of food writing, and then and, and fashion writing and. Um, just so I, after a few years of that, I needed a full-time job. And it just so happened that a fashion magazine was the only magazine that offered me a full-time job. So that was my accidental entry point in the mid eighties into fashion. And, um, after I'd been at the magazine for a few years, again, not being ambitious, not being a scheming minx, but Mm. the editor left and, um, the publisher did a dandest to hire anyone but me, but was eventually kind of compelled by a sort of uh, process of elimination to offer the job to me. Um, um, I proposed a TV show to the CBC who had just launched a 24-hour news channel, um, and they needed cheap programming. And at that point, fashion on television wasn't really anything. It was Elsa, there was Elsa Clench on CNN, there was Jeannie Becker on City TV, also from Toronto. But... And then, and then we, we started doing Fashion File. And it coincided with 1989, we started Fashion File. And it coincided with the, the supermodel boom. Mm. And fashion just went completely ballistic. And there were just a handful of camera crews who were covering it at that time. So by, by some complete coincidence, I started covering fashion on television just as fashion became this arm of the entertainment industry. And I did and that, that. And that was a daily show too. That was a it was, thirty it, minute it, daily did, show. Yeah, we did five minute segments, four to five minute segments, and they at, there was a daily segment. But you could, when you bought the show, you could choose to show it as a weekly half hour. Which um, it was one of the first shows that E bought when E started in America, actually. And for a little while on E, we outrated Howard Stern, which I always thought was kind of amazing. <laughs> uh, and and and. I have so many people come up to me still and say, it was, it was on Saturday morning and say, Saturday morning, I watched Fashion File with my mum. That is why I am a model, designer, mm. photographer, whatever, mm. you know. Beautiful. It, 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 yeah. Yeah. And, and I had no sense of that because I left Canada quite soon after um, we started doing the show and, I'm, and I was headhunted for a job in England and at the body shop. And I came back to England and never really had anything to do with Fashion File apart from making it. But... Mm. Rode through that and rode through the 90s, which to me is the absolute, the most magical decade in fashion. Um, just so much happened in that decade. And it was the last full flowering of everything that I think, the last uncompromised full flowering of, 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 of what people love about fashion. So I did that until the about 2005 when style.com offered me a job. And so through all that time, um, I saw how fashion changed 
really, I mean, first of all, <clears throat> excuse me, first of all, um, seeing what cable TV did to fashion, how it turned it into an entertainment, mm. sort of, you know, where you would watch, you would watch fashion without necessarily feeling the need to engage with it. You know, um, it, 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 you could watch it as a sort of, like you'd watch a movie or something. And, yeah, and so it had this huge audience. It had this huge audience of people mm. who didn't feel compelled to rush out and buy a Chanel outfit or anything if they saw it on Fashion File. But so it was this, this kind of wild interest. We used to get lots of fan mail from, you know, firehouses. All the firemen would watch my kind of footage of the, of the shows in Rio, which were in, invariably lots of bikinis. And, and, you know, you'd get the strangest, God, the strangest. Anyway, th those were golden days. And um, then when I, when I went to style.com, obviously that, that was the kind of the beginning of the internet covering fashion. Mm. And um, so that was another funny coincidence. And so we rode that wave. And then when I went, to, I left style.com and I went to business of fashion and that was kind of the second wave of the internet covering fashion. And um, uh, business of fashion was very much, I think a beat more of a B2B site at that point. And I think Imran Ahmed, the founder was looking to create more of a public interface. And I was, I just was uh, somebody who was very, um, <clears throat> useful to him in that capacity. So that's where I've been for the last few years. But in, in that whole time, seeing how the industry has changed from the first shows I went to in Paris, it's funny because we're kind of, we're going to be talking about this in a, in a minute with everything that's going on. Then through the, the sort of cable TV, through the, through the internet, through the new internet, um, and the impact that all of that has had on the way people experience fashion and what they expect from fashion has been incredible. And I don't think there's too many people who, who have that span, you know, mm. it's, been, I mean, I started going to fashion shows in Paris and, and when I got that job at the magazine um, in sort of the mid eighties and that's 35 years. And, you know, and, and there just aren't that many people who've, who can sit back and, speak with any kind of perspective um about about that um and we'll likely never see a time like that again no, in fashion no, or no, not at all creative arts no not at all not at all you won't you won't um i mean well i don't know if we want to broach it now but i, I could see I could see. I don't like the the idea of going back. I I, th I think when I see the world, the word back, and you see the word back a lot at the moment. Back to normality. Back to, um, you know, whatever. Back to the way things were. It, we can't say back. We have to say forward. But I, oddly enough, I can see fashion moving forward into a into a much smaller, more humanly scaled, more artisanal, um, maybe more the way fashion was, what fashion meant to people years ago before it turned into this massive monster that it is now. Mm. It was a monologue, wasn't it? That was a beautiful introduction. <laughs> I was quite happy to keep, keep you talking, Tim. <laughs> that, and I suppose, Tim, that, that glut, if you could call it, of, of 
skill and talent and brands launching and limitless budgets and things that you probably were seeing in the in the 90s especially um tell me about some of the names of the designers that were coming up at that time and and the people that i suppose it's it's i suppose one of the things i think is hard because fashion moves at such a pace is to hang on to things or to even be able to appreciate what you must be seeing season to season especially day to day month to month but some of those people must have stuck with you a bit become friends become allies become those designers that you love to go and rewatch their shows what's what stuck with you across the decades that you could talk back to now well what what the way my job my job was always in some way focused on fashion shows um at fashion file i was filming them making the videos um going behind the scenes and that sort of thing hadn't really happened up until that point um interviewing hair and makeup people you know suddenly everybody was a star in those days so um uh so i was covering shows with video and then going to style.com i was reviewing shows and then i also started to do video at style.com as well and then at at business of fashion again i'm i'm reviewing shows for the site um so it's it's always been about the show so my my relationship with fashion has been through that the the most sort of graphic and um and well known um face of fashion is the fashion show mm. which which means you know London, Paris, New York, Milan, Tokyo, Rio, um, Auckland. I did, Auckland. did a fashion, did a fashion <laughs> week in Auckland, Sydney. Um, I did Dublin. I mean, I'm, I mean, there's, everywhere has a fashion week because fashion weeks became um, a sort of emblematic of a country's cultural um, cultural identity. Uh, interesting that that happened. But you know, fashion's an incredibly important and I'd say sort of primal impulse for creative impulse for people. I mean, I, I got invited to, I've, I'm continually, well, I don't, so I don't know if it'll happen now, was continually being invited to Fashion Week in Transylvania. And um, uh, Transylvanian Fashion Week, two and a half days, not a week, two and a half days, they could afford to pay for a hotel for one and a half days. <laughs> I never made it to Transylvania. But, um, you, know, you know, there was always a You should weird... definitely go. You've got to go. Um, yeah, that, that, no, the, the women who invited me were so wonderful and they're so enthusiastic. And, and um, anyway, that's just a, so, so in, in that time, you know, when I, when I came into fashion, it was people like Versace. I mean, the famous show with the supermodels um, walking down the catwalk to George Michael. It was, um, you know, it's really interesting. I, I'm a terrible hoarder and I, I kept all my invitations. So I have, it's just like a box, boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of invitations. And if I ever take time to go through them, you know, I pull out this scrappy piece of paper, like a scrappy old piece of fax paper. And it's an invitation to a Helmut Lang show, you know, in probably 1989, maybe 1980, maybe earlier because I was going to shows before I started doing fashion bar. It would be like a, yeah. Um, a scrappy little piece of, um, of, of, of Xerox paper, always with the ST in, um, 
felt to pan for standing because in those days I had a couple of strikes against me. One, I was a video. I wasn't, you know, um, uh, print, print, print media. Two, I was from Canada. So Canada was ranked somewhere below Albania, I think, on the, on the list of countries that they wanted, you know, to give prominence to. Um, and I just never went to Helmut Lang shows. I thought, what's this? I didn't know. I'd never heard of him. And I'm not going to stand. <laughs> oh, no, I stood up for everything. <laughs> Standing sometimes the best. You stand at the back, see over everyone's heads. You get a good get, view. Get a great view. I, I would say that, the, the, and also in those days, the front row, um, the photographers were standing around the catwalk. You know, you didn't have a pit. The photographers, and there weren't very many of them, and they were ranked around the catwalk. Um, and if you're in the front row, you've got these big, quite smelly, some of them, um, you know, in front of you through the whole show. And so, I mean, that, 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 the whole notion of the front row, actually, that, that, that idea evolved over time. Initially, it was a very different proposition. Um, yes, I stood for, I stood for years. Um, and I didn't care. Um, you know, it's like Hal Rubenstein said about eating at the Cote Basque or the Cirque. Even if you're in the, at the uh, even if you're sitting at the table by the toilet, you're still eating the same food as Jackie Onassis. So what the hell? Yeah, I was still seeing the same things as as everybody else in the audience. Um, but th- so there was that kind of eighties excess. Of, um, and my favorite designer of that time was Christian Lacroix. Um, I mean, I mean, amazing shows, um, an amazing man, a fabulous interview. He was congenitally incapable of, of not answering the question you asked mm. him, no matter how painful or personal or, or intrusive. I mean, I felt I was intruding sometimes. He called me his analyst because he would just, Talk to me about, I remember, I remember how heartbreaking it was once when someone very close to him died and he, and it was after the show and there was all those twits saying, tell me about the influences. Why? Tell me about the buttons or whatever. And, Mm. and, and we just started talking. He was crying and, and we talked for just hours and he really needed to talk and, we just had this really strange relationship like that. And we reconnected recently and it was exactly the same as it's always mm. been. I mean, he's very, very happy not to be in fashion, of course, and he's very happy doing what he does. But apart from that amazing show that he did with Dries van Noten. But the, so there was Christian Lacroix and then, and then that was Linda with her hair changing color, or Linda, Linda Evangelista and Naomi and Chrissy Turlington and Cindy Crawford and Yasmin Gowry and these amazing women, um, just so powerful. And they got too powerful. And designers like Karl Lagerfeld decided that suddenly it had become all about the models and not about the designers. So they diffused the whole situation by hiring, um, you know, waifs. Mm. So that the waif thing came in. And, and then, um, then we had Helmut Lang, I mean, we had Kate Moss and we had Helmut Lang coming, um, Helmut Lang reaching the point where I was like suddenly totally enraptured and had to see every, every Helmut Lang show. And then Tom Ford bringing back that extraordinary um, glamour, that sort of mm. Sharon Tate look that he, he was infatuated with Sharon Tate and managed to make that live for Gucci. And all through the 80s, there were these really fabulous people who were just incredible to talk to about anything mm. and whose references were just so 
so um, thrilling for me because I, I, I always thought of myself as an outsider. I never was really like a fashion person per se. So it was really great to be able to, you know, even if just sitting down on the floor and talking with Shalom Harlow about Sonic Youth for half an hour or just find this really interesting community of people that I saw a lot. I saw them more than I saw my friends because I was traveling around, you know, like this mm. kind of nomadic pack traveling around. Anyway, I mean, I remember vividly still remember a when we went out for a, a really, you know, a, a casual dinner after the Eccentric Molecule launch at the department store back in 2012 or something. Mm. And I remember then a conversation that I just, it just put a big smile on my face because there I was, you know, didn't, I wasn't quite sure what I could talk to you about. And I wasn't quite sure if I'd watched a smart enough movie recently or read a fancy book and all you wanted to do was talk about how wonderful the latest Transformers movie was. <laughs> and, and I was like, yes, this man's pulling in cultural references from everywhere. You know, it wasn't just <laughs> 12 gallons of cloudy Bay or something. I guess. Well, it wasn't, um, it wasn't just like the, you know, well, the ruffles on the skirt or did you see the, oh or did you see the length of the oh, skirt or no, the, no. you know, and it was, and that's what people love about you so much. It's, the fact that you could talk to someone sitting on the floor at the back of a show with some young model about the, her favorite band, that's actually what makes the fashion industry so rich and vibrant. It's not, it's not the description of what you're seeing in front of you for the viewers at home, you know? I'll tell you, yeah, I, I said, like I said, I was an outsider. So, you know, if you asked me to define the mechanics of a frock, it would be impossible for me to do that. Mm. But I always felt that writing about fashion, um, do you, and, you know, people would say to me, do you do reses? You know, do you go and look at a collection after you've seen it on a runway? And I said, no, because I'm writing about, I write about what the designer wants me to see. Mm. And I write, I write about how he or she wants me to see that, what the music is, what the hair and the makeup is, what the, the, the temperature of the room is, what the, mm. you know, the, the set, the, all of that. And it's um, such a powerful experience. And it's, I still yeah, believe that yeah. to this day. And I yeah, hate yeah, the yeah. thought of us maybe not having those kind of experiences in the yeah. short or medium term, but that experience of an event in a fashion show, that 360 full sensory experience, it's not, it's not just, it's, you're not just coming to see models going down a runway, you know, and it's something that I always talk to people about. It's everything. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I An mean, it, that, that is a huge, that is going to be a huge crisis. It's going to be a huge uh, conceptual uh, crisis for the fashion industry. That The whole book is, you know, people aren't going to want to pack into tiny little, uh, tiny little concert mm. halls and, or into huge big stadiums or whatever, wherever fashion shows um, have, have been happening. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because, um, a show, I, I, I've seen untold thousands of fashion shows now. Really, I mean, I worked out one day, I must have seen, I don't know, six or 700 Karl Lagerfeld shows alone in all his various manifestations. But they, it, spectacle, scale, 
was not necessary for impact. You know, it's interesting. The first Karen Walker show I ever saw was in Sydney, in Sydney Fashion Week. Mm. And I think it was called Electricity. And the models walked with um, uh, plugs, you know, electrical cords. And, and they had, you know, electrical cords with plugs bouncing along, like tails. Mm. And I thought, wow, that is just such a, that's such a sort of, you know, because this, 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 the show was pretty bare bones, but you remembered that it was such a, it was such a strange little styling, styling uh, trick. It went, but it did go with the concept of the collection. Um, and it had a sort of kind of slightly eerie uh, edge to it. Um, I, rem- I, I, you know, I said, who is this? I want to, I want to find out who this person is and went backstage and met her and everything. And then, you know, now Karen and I have been friends for years and years, but I think, I think back to, you know, a Helmut Lang show again, quite bare bones in the actual presentation, but, um, in the, you know, the, the actual mm. set of the thing, um, but amazing original soundtrack by DJ friends of his and the way the models were choreographed, that he showed men and women together, which at that time was um, quite unusual. And the way they would, they were grouped to come out. Um, just this sense, you know, a fashion show is an amazing ritual and ritual is such a powerful thing for human beings, any kind of ritual. And, and we ritualize our behavior, I think, in ways that we're not even aware of just because that, I guess it's a way of creating meaning for ourselves and we need structure and ritual offers a kind of stability. And so it was really interesting to see, it's always been interesting to see how designers use that. If they have nothing, Patrick Ovell, a young menswear designer in New York once did this show where we just all sat in his showroom. The models walked in front of us and they pushed the clothes out on racks and we looked at the clothes. And that sounds like absolutely nothing. It sounds so basic. But there was just something about seeing the models, hearing the music that he wanted us to listen to while we were looking at his clothes, and then being able to look at them right away was quite, you know, it was, it was intelligent. It was impressive because it was minimal, but it was intelligent. But also it was kind of moving. I, I, I don't know, there's this, I, I remember when I first started going to shows, um, and I'd be at, you know, the, 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 I remember a Jeffrey Bean show in New York, an amazing designer. And this is one thing maybe that this crisis makes us stop and consider and remember how many amazing people there were in fashion that we don't have to go. I know I, know I say we don't look back, we go forward, but I think we, go, we can go forward by suddenly appreciating somebody amazing like Jeffrey Bean. Um, I remember leaving his show and I was this, this, I had a black tooth, I remember, at the front, which I eventually had replaced. And I looked, I must have looked squalid. And probably quite sweaty. And these women, these women that you'd only ever seen in magazines like Diana Vreeland and sobbing, just sobbing after the show. And I was like, hmm, it's a bit extreme. <laughs> and, um, and then a few years later, I think I was at a Claude Montana show in Paris or something. And I suddenly felt this lump in my chest and it wasn't trapped wind. It was definitely something emotional. And um, I thought, wow, I could cry at a fashion show. Mm. Years later, I'm at a Raf Simmons show. And he, his model, it was on a, and it was in some industrial park outside Paris. And the models came and went on these, you know, these like escalators in, in airports that 
go up two stories, you know, these massive long escalators. And they were wearing these coats, that, these like wind coats, like a Semiaki wind coat, but it was Raph Simmons' version of them. And when the models walked, well, they weren't walking, they were just on the escalators. And the breeze of the movement of the escalator blew these coats into like these, like um, wings. And I just, it, the music was, oh, if you held a gun to my head, I'd be able to remember the music, but it was some kind of soaring electronica. And it was just a glimpse of heaven. And, mm. you know, you get those things through, um, through the years. I could almost, you know, tap off through the, through the uh, like, I'm, I mean, um, seal off like packages of time through, through these incredible, incredibly memorable experiences. And, of course, now, you know, it's one of the things that people are talking about is what the hell happens to fashion shows and what the hell happens to all those all those memories that are waiting to be made and people are talking, you know, everything will have to be digital. There's, there's um, VR and so on. And I've seen, I've seen some amazing VR presentations that, uh, that Mexican designer in the, in Inaritu, the guy who did gravity. Mm. Um, and he did a thing um, for the, with the Prada, Prada foundation where you're embedded with Mexican um, with refugees trying to cross into America, with immigrants trying to cross into America, and you're embedded with them, and it was the most staggering experience. It was it was, it was so overwhelming that you know you were, I was destroyed at the end of it. But I mean, you're not supposed to say what happens, but it's just so intense. And I was thinking, wow, well, you know, fashion. That there's been so much talk about storytelling and fashion and what a wonderful way to tell a story about your collection that you embed the clothes in some kind of VR narrative. Mm. But how many designers do we know who are still walk, working on their collections the morning of the show? You know, how many, how many people are not prepped for that kind of uh, production? I mean... It would need, obviously, there's all these people saying, well, we can do it for you. There's all these people coming up and saying, well, our business can do this for you. But, you know, there's an old way of doing things. There's a new way of doing things. And whatever, however they collide or coalesce over the next three or four years, it's not, I don't think it's going to be anything that anyone's been able to anticipate because mm -hmm the physicality of fashion, you, you, I mean, you can't lose that. Mm -hmm. and, and digital, uh, di the digital entity, the di uh, when it's presented as a digital entity, I know Armani did his show uh, virtually, um, like the last day of the shows um, in Milan, he canceled his show, um, you know, um, six weeks or so ago, and did it virtually. And it was a, the full production. It was a full show. It was the music. It was the models. It was a set. It was, a, you know, the whole thing just on a screen, obviously no audience. And it was a very earnest effort, you know, give you access to what you would have seen if you'd been in the audience. And I sat there thinking, you know, I'm looking at what the editor wants me to see. Mm. I, wanted, I wanted to go back and look at that outfit and we didn't see it again. Mm. I wanted. I wanted to look. What's what's happening with the shoes? The feet are cut off on the screen. Mm. Um, um, the music is not loud enough. Uh, you, you know the whole thing. And, and where's uh, 
where's this, just the physical sense of the audience, the sort of the rise and fall of, of, of interest or whatever, you know, all of those things are sort of, I talked about a ritual, a big part of a ritual is tribalism and, you know, obviously we're, this is a, the, one of the ironies of the um, coronavirus crisis is that we're all, we're, the tribe is scattered. We're all individuals, you know, um, and I, that's, that's for fashion. That's a rather startling proposition. So, mm. um, And I think people are just, I mean, not, not just starting, but we are, I mean, in New Zealand here, we're nearly three weeks into our level four lockdown and, and other countries have been in that mode for, for a bit longer than us, but it's that intense desire and that need for human interaction. And like you said, it's, it's watching the ebb and flow, the rise and fall of emotion, listening to people gasp or watching someone look away or catching someone's eye and seeing what they're seeing. It's kind of like when Amazon launched back in the day and it was just selling books and someone said, do will never be able to recreate what it, what it is to, to be inside a library, you know? Um, and that's still, that's still true, you know, despite the fact that that company has gone on to be so mega. But yeah, it, it's one of those things, I suppose, that the fashion industry is just going to have to a, a little bit accept and roll up its sleeves and get on with it for the meantime. I don't know if we can necessarily sit here and lament the loss of fashion shows because it is what it is, unfortunately. Yeah. We're in this moment well, we and we, we can lament. We can lament mm. their. We just in the way that that I always felt so privileged to. That's one of my. That yeah, probably is one of my favorite things about the, the way I've spent my time in the last um, three decades. I just felt so privileged to see a lot of what I saw, and mm. I, I was always, you know, you'd come, you'd come out of a Galliano show or a McQueen show, and you'd just you'd be saying. I wish everybody could see that. I, I, they should sell tickets to this thing. They should, you know, like 10 designers should rent a theater on Broadway or something and, and, and do their fashion shows for a paying audience because um, they were, you know, when you, read, when you read about people who saw the ballet russe at the beginning of the 20th century or saw Nijinsky dance and the things that, you know, the awestruck reminiscences I, I can do awestruck reminiscences. <laughs> <laughs> you could do awestruck well, reminiscences of Versace yeah. and Tom Ford and Karl Lagerfeld for yeah. us. Yeah. Well, just at the shows, just at the shows. I mean, I wouldn't do awestruck reminiscences of the people, but I would do, I would definitely could do, um, I could do uh, shock and awe about the things that they, some of the things that they did. But, you know, getting back to that economy of means thing, it didn't need to be a gigantic, um, some of the gigantic ones were amazing. Alexander McQueen, uh, you know, those shows are just, the psychodrama of his shows was just, was just completely overwhelming and, and, and just transcendent. But other people, Tom Ford did amazing shows with almost nothing. I mean, probably with millions of dollars of something, <laughs> but so sublimated that mm. that that mm. Uh, you know you weren't you weren't being banged on the head with with seventy millimeter spectacle, mm. but you were you were drawn into it. So I guess it's like the, it's like the difference between Cecil B. DeMille and Ingmar Bergman. You know, you'd be drawn into a into this very intimate, um, sensual. Uh, 
um, uh, environment that he, of course, was a perfect physical embodiment of himself. Mm. Tim, tell us about some of the the books that you've put together or contributed to, because speaking of memories and and compiling thoughts and memories and happenings of things, and also thinking about those things that we that we can't recreate through the through a two dimensional image or the written word. Um, but it must be such a privilege to work with some of those designers and those design houses to to put together the sort of the life and times of some of the world's biggest fashion yeah, designers that yeah. we've known. What a yeah. privilege that that must have been. Tell me about some of those, the, the books that you've worked on and both big and well, small projects. Well, what's, what, what I think is very interesting and it's kind of, I don't know, this might become even more prominent now. Um, when I first started in fashion, there weren't really that many fashion books. I mean, they'd be like a coffee, big coffee table things. But it was publishers said fashion books didn't sell, um, and there wasn't interest. And you know, it's an interesting thing because as as a critic, I would never call myself a critic, but I guess I was because I've critiqued fashion shows. I, um, you'd look at you know, fa- fashion journalists were low men on the totem pole. You know, in in, in fashion was scorned by. Um, you know, deep thinkers and so on. I remember in Toronto, because I worked for a fashion magazine, you'd, you'd have to endure the sort of snide kind of remarks of like some 400-pound sports writer who, who felt that, you know, what you did was so much less than what he mm. did. Mm. Um, and there was no, um, I've said this a lot, but there was no critical canon um, for fashion writing um, as there was for... You know, there were canonized film critics, music critics, opera critics, ballet critics, book critics, theater critics, television critics. Every other creative medium had its iconic commentators. And fashion didn't really. Um, You couldn't, I mean, Kennedy Fraser from The New Yorker, maybe. But um, you couldn't look back and, and really brush up on fabulous fashion commentary from the past. You know, you wouldn't find wonderful things being written about Coco Chanel in the 30s or whatever. And I always thought that was rather, it was a kind of curious uh, comment on on fashion status, you know, really, that it was this enormous thing which which, which dwelled on desire and, and beauty and, and yet it seemed to be, the poor cousin of everything else. And that, that, has, that has changed over time. And if there were no fashion books when I first arrived on the scene, God, there were just there's a glut of them now. Mm. And they do well. Mm. And even the really big expensive ones do well. There's such an interest. In, and I think um, what, what I find really interesting, what I have found really interesting is how young people, really young people, not, not millennials, but Gen Z, are interested in history, the history of fashion. I get way more questions about, oh, what, what was it like? You know, when you were there, what did you see? Who was there? All that sort of stuff. People um, in their 30s and 40s couldn't give a damn, but, um, well, I shouldn't say that's a sweeping generalization, but um, who cares? Say uh, <laughs> it. <laughs> kids are, are fascinated, you know, like, um, oh, what was the Claude Montana show like? 
But I think I think these books are um, the books are a reflection of that. And I've um, you know that I don't know. Do you know the series of books that Thames and Hudson is doing? The cat walking books they're called, and mm. they and they and they're all the show. That like they're like um, thumbnails of all the shows. Yeah, and and you know it seems like so anal this thing it seems like it would be such a um you know for only for fans kind of thing really ardent like mm. you know train spotting fashion mm. fan um they are absolutely sweeping the board these things they're in the third and fourth printings i mean there's been a saint laurent there's been a prada there's been a dior there's been a uh, i can't remember what else I'm doing the Versace one, and um, it's 120 shows. So it's wow. the pictures from the show, and then... And every exit is photographed and, then and got, portrayed. Well, I think, I think they edited. I think they, they are edited because, you know, shows used to be an hour long, mm. and now they're, um, now they're maybe eight minutes or ten minutes. It shows even that McQueen Highland Rape show... Um, I was fascinated when I went back to Luke because I, I worked on the McQueen book that came out with the exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And when I went back to look at that Highland Rape show that was so controversial, everybody remembers it as being one of his early, one, one of his most important shows um, in the early days of his career. And Highland Rape, which seems to have passed by in a frenzy of controversy, was actually about 45 minutes long. The show is about... And when you're watching it, you're thinking, wow, I mean, where was the editor on that? Mm. You know, because now shows are like, eh, they're edited right down to this, this maximum impact thing. Anyway, yeah, so the, 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 it's not every exit there. It's an edited thing. But there's a, I have to write about every single show. Wow. Um, 120 mini reviews. And then women's and, um, and Gianni and Donatella. It's not, mm. it's both of them. It's the House of Versace. Now that's going to be fabulous to work on because I kind of love that. I am quite anal and quite detailed. I, I, I get quite kind of wrapped up in detail and um, I mean, I'm a slob, but um, I, I get quite caught up in, in detail. And then another, another one I'm doing, which I'm really excited about is Dior has been doing a series of beautiful um, monographs about each of the designers who worked on Dior. I think, I think it's Asseline that are doing them publisher Asseline and these books I mean I needed like six burly workers to get the last one into my flat they're huge they're tombstones these books gorgeous just beautifully the production on them is beautiful and, and I'm doing the Raph Simmons one mm. which is very exciting again because um you know Raph that's a career that's a career to really kind of dwell on its various um the various turns it's taken um but 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 then it's interesting because you do go back and especially if you saw if you were in the privileged position of seeing the shows you can go back and relive them um and and make your own comment with with the awareness at the same time that this is what people in the future will probably know about this show mm. so you have an i feel i have an obligation to write about these things as lyrically and as 
persuasively as I can, because my goal was always to put you in my seat. Mm. So when I wrote when I wrote about fashion shows, it's always to make you feel, give you a sense of what it would be like to be there. So if I have more traditional fashion journalists saying to me, oh, you only ever write about the music. And I would say, well, I heard it, you heard it, the designer wanted me to hear it. And now mm. I would like people who, I would. I thought that linking thing was quite interesting. I often thought, should I just write my reviews like with endless links, you know? I never did because I'm not techie. And then all the other books I've done over the years, I've worked with, um, the Dries van Noten book was a hilarious, it was the same thing, writing about shows. Susanna Frankel did the women's shows, I did the men's shows. We had to do that book in about six weeks. It's another tombstone of a book, huge, huge. I don't think I've ever written so much. <laughs> it was... It was just like, it was complete frenzy of um, trying to get these books done. Beautiful books. I'm so, you know, you look at them and you think, God, I had something to do with that. I did a Dolce & Gabbana book for them when we were still friendly. I did, a, I did you know, I love doing books. I did a book with, uh, for, with Walter Van, Van Berendonk. You know, people who, there are people who everybody knows, like Dolce & Gabbana, and then there are people mm. who aren't so well-known, like Walter Van Berendonk, who should be known. And and you are thinking that, you know, in the future, this is what people will know about what mm. this world was. Mm. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned before about the ways that shows have become shorter, mostly. You know, there's still a few a few ones out there that you're sort of checking your watch going, when's this going to be over? Um, but I was watching something from the team that produce all the shows for um, Bureau de Patek, uh, who who seem to be just producing every uh, fabulous show everywhere. And the founder was talking about the way that shows were uh, changed and edited for TV um, when things started to be filmed. And now um, shows are edited and created and moments are, are sparked for social media. And it's that, I think it's almost like it's it's even more of an intense it has to be more of an intense, quick, um, experiential kind of thing these days for those shows to get that moment, you know, uh, where maybe we won't even see, and I don't know if you can put your finger on any other writers at the moment who are kind of describing the shows to the level of detail that you are, or even if there's enough detail in them to be described uh, and, you know, and shared you can at, write- at that level. You can write about anything. You can you can you can find something to say about every single every single I mean that's a challenge to every single show you see see and to keep on finding new things to say about people whose shows I might have seen, you know, sixty or seventy times and find new ways to talk about what might be the same old things mm. um is is the ongoing challenge. I think um I think there is some, I think there's extremely good coverage about fashion in um, magazines like Another. I, I think that's Susanna Frankel and Alexander Fury. I think, um, I, th- I feel that there's a new, um, not new actually, because Ro- Robin Gavan, who writes for the Washington Post, um, who won the Pulitzer Prize for her fashion journalism actually, uh, is, is, is somebody I read, Vanessa Friedman in the New York Times. And then and then there's in England, there are um 
I feel, actually, I feel like the critical faculty um, that might have once been expressed in uh, the word, there are, there are people kind of doing it um, maybe through Instagram or, um, I mean, there's people I love. I love if, if they ever make comments on fashion, like Tom Pryor, I find very funny. Raven Smith, I find very funny. Um, Sharp. Um, and, but I, they don't, they, there's not really the, the long form stuff um, so mm. much. Uh, but I, I think, I, I feel that, I suppose I feel I read, I read more about fashion now than I used to. I didn't really, while I was reviewing, while I was reviewing Furiously, I wasn't really reading what other people were saying. Um, mm. well, I suppose that's what happens when there's just so much content. A lot of it is people trying to create content in a way that they yeah, think it should yeah. be created. But if yeah. you wade through it all, there's, there's, that's also going to, the more that we do things like that, it's going to inspire more people to do it. And it's going to make people be more critical of what they've seen or what they loved or what they hated or, and, and, and the motivated ones will, will try and do it in a better way. Um, well, I thought what, what I did think was interesting when, when blogging became a big deal um, was people getting all hot under the collar. Um, you know, they'd look at the photographs on style.com um, and they'd, review a show from image from pictures mm. and there'd be these raging debates people hot under the collar kind of yelling at each other um digitally virtually um um you know cancelling each other furiously over, <laughs> over over thumbnails on the internet and uh, you know do you know lee edelcourt you know the trend guys no. you've ever heard of her she's a very important kind of what are they called not a cool hunter she's a bit more than that um, but she advises people for years and years. She's been a sort of oracle in the fashion industry. And I remember once she said to me that she thought style.com was the worst thing that had ever happened to fashion because it reduced clothes to a two-dimensional, you know, mm. tiny little two-dimensional image mm. that you only saw from the front. Mm. And she said fashion is three-dimensional and, um, you know, you never saw what was going on at the back. And then I, I felt a few designers very perversely did shows where all the, all the interest in addresses was at the back. So when you saw them on style.com, just like a little black dress, and you didn't even know that behind there was this massive thing going on. Um, and she, she was right, of course, that, that, that online coverage did reduce fashion, even as, even as it expanded it in one way. In another way, it reduced mm. it to mm. this two-dimensional picture and um the, so the blog the blogging thing boomed and it was that kind of coverage and the the people who were there I, that's when i started to sound really started to sound like methuselah because i would say i think it really felt like you need to be there to, to kind of write efficiently or evocatively about what you've seen you know you can't i couldn't I've never, ever reviewed a show from pictures. And I know some of my colleagues have. Mm. In the same way, I don't write press releases for designers. I know some of my colleagues have. So, um, you know, I, I'm, 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 it's not about artistic integrity. That's too French and Saunders. But I, I do think, um, no, I like, I like the surprise. I, yeah, I like the surprise. So, um, Tim, how, um, have you, how have you stayed motivated to, to be 
in the position that you are to, to maybe that there won't be so much jetting around the world in the next couple of years, but it must be tiring. I relish that. I relish that. <laughs> you know, I, I, we at, at, at style.com, obviously I used to do all those things because I was a freelance contractor and I was able to take the trips that people who were on staff couldn't take. Yay. Mm. And then that Good got loophole. To the, well done. That, yeah, well, that got to the point. That would be OF. We don't take trips. Um, right. And we don't. Um, and if there is ever a, there's the, 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 the notion that there could ever be a quid pro quo was very kind of, uh, very compromising. Mm. Um, but then I, but we stopped doing that. And I looked at that schedule, that cruise schedule, the cruise show schedule. And, you know, it was literally go to Kyoto for two days for the Dior show. And, and I thought of all the people who had never been to Japan before, and they literally went to Kyoto for two days, not even Kyoto, but outside Kyoto, and then left to go to, I don't know what it was, the Saint Laurent show in LA or something. Um, and then there was something in New York or whatever. It was just, I looked at that schedule and I thought, no, mm. I, I, I don't, never mind that, you know, those particular collections are, that then, you know, people never even used to mention them. And now they've become, well, I guess they're the, they're the kind of commercial engines of the fashion industry. And, and, and it's when you step back, the minute you step back and you think, I did that? And you can feel everything change. You can feel everything changing. You can feel like, well, the minute, this is what's going to be really interesting about this whole thing. Now, the minute you stop doing something, when the opportunity arises to start doing it again, you question. Of course. You question the importance. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a thing about fashion shows, isn't it? Are people going to travel? People, are people going to want to travel? in the way they used to. I mean, once upon a time, you could see it as a perk, I suppose. It used to make me crazy when you'd sit down the first morning in Milan, because Milan was at the beginning at one point. Um, this kind of changed over the years. You'd sit down first morning, first show, first morning in Milan, and an American journalist would plop down beside you and say, oh, Milan. And I'd say, well, what's the problem? Oh. I hate it. And I said, why? Oh, I just wish I, wish I was at home. I said, well, be at home then. Mm. Don't work for the post office or something. Yeah. You know, how bloody lucky are you? You're in Milan. You, you know, you're, you, you're, you're privileged to be here. And this, that used to make me, um, I just used to hear it all the time, spoiled. Mm entitled mm. um to, to, i mean the, the fashion industry has been built on mega brands superstar designers elitism you can't sit with us you're not invited invite only behind closed doors <laughs> behind the scenes backstage you know and i think one of the most magnificent things about the industry and about the way that culture has changed recently is that there is a there is a, a view towards sharing, letting you in behind the scenes, you know, taking you through the the closed door that no one else can get through, and and video and TV has been a huge part of letting people into that world. So yeah, it, it it's possible that it will go back a little bit to that. Fewer people might 
they might still do shows and they might only do them do them to whoever wants to turn up and that that number may dwindle um or do you think that's, that- an, that's a, actually that's an interesting point murray i'm going to go away and think about that because when i first started doing um fashion file in 1989 um as i said i you know i couldn't I couldn't, I couldn't give you a, a point form breakdown of the semantics of a frock or anything like mm. that. But I just had such infinite respect for these people and what they did. And and in those days, I do feel designers were maybe a lot more, a lot more involved. There wasn't some so much the huge big team. They didn't have to do so many collections, so it wasn't this endless kind of this endless merry-go-round um, and, and they were more engaged, more, deli- more directly involved. Um, and I was so fascinated by what made them tick that I could, I could be, I was genuinely curious. I was, wh- why, you know, why, why are you doing that? Like what, 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 what is this? I suppose it was a very, very kind of, highfalutin version of what's what are your tell me about your influences question but but mm. you know i would talk to them about about their lives and and what what had made them what had brought them to this this pretty pass and and uh i think that that was what was so that was what was so unusual about what we were first doing the first camera approach the first video approach to fashion is that it was it was showing them a kind of respect um, that I don't think they'd been used to in a funny way, you know, and even talking to, talking to hair and makeup people or talking to the models or talking to whoever that the fact that there was a degree of genuine interest in them was, I suppose it was flattering in a way that in wanting to talk to somebody about, you know, not necessarily why they used red this season or, or but why they'd been, you know, watching Visconti's films. It sounds very pretentious when I put it like that, but it just was a surprise that, that mm. oh, gosh, this person knows that. And, and he's asking me a question about it and he's making me sound smart, you know. Mm. Mm. And so there, there was that and I could almost see after this, if, if, if shows don't happen anymore as they did happen ever again, or if it takes a while for that, for that way of presenting fashion to, to move into a new kind of area, maybe, maybe it does go back to that. I don't know why I don't want to say back, but maybe it does go return to that return. Another way of saying it, where the designer takes you into their world, it's and it's not necessarily about the show, but it is it is taking you into the world that they are making with their clothes. Mm. That's a very good point, Murray. That, that and it will be less about the influences on the street getting their photos taken, and less about the the big parties. And it will be yeah. it will be it will be special. I think it will be it will special be, because it will be slow fashion. It yeah. will be slow fashion because it will be much more meditative, and it won't be spinning wildly around seasonal situations. And mm. I could even see, I can even see in my mind the designers I would love to do that with right now. Mm. So um, imagine if they said, we're not going to do X amount of shows a year. We're going to do one. Yes. Yeah. That's you know, already and, muted actually. And we might not even do one next year. We might do one every two years. Yeah. 
imagine oh, you're reading what... my Jean-Paul II interview then. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> no, I did it. <laughs> yeah. But imagine yeah. imagine how special those moments would become again and imagine how rich the memories would become and imagine how people would pour over the reviews, if you could call them that, or the descriptions and the storytelling around them. Whereas at the moment, there's so much information, so many pictures, so many words, nothing sticks. No one gets a chance to sit down and actually listen. Yeah, the audience would be much smaller. I mean, Mm. it's the sort of, you know, as I just, I'm curious to see what happens to the Karkrashian audience with um, this crisis, Mm. you know? how they will change. Kim has mm. displayed an astonishingly tin ear to the, um, you know, by reactivating her feud with Taylor Swift just in the middle of this, which is a little bit incomprehensible to, to, to see somebody being so out of touch with mm, mm. reality. Um, and, and, you know, my, my whole thing about the return of humanity, the return of, the return of humanism, the, the, you know, the, the notion that the hand is going to be valued so much more than the, the hand and the heart will be valued so much more than, than, um, you know, that like things, things that we've got, ver- we've become very used to like convenience and instant mm. gratification speed and all those things speed. Yeah. Cost. All those things that are sort of antithetical to, to what makes fashion, what gives fashion its magic, which is, you know, I, I, I hesitate to use the word dream because it is such a cliche, but the fact is that there are clothes and there is fashion and, mm. and fashion takes you, fashion does allow you to see yourself in another way. You know, that's what fashion is for. It, 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 um, it's transformative and it's, it, yeah, it, yes, it's, yes. It's escapism. Yes. Well, yes, sometimes, sometimes. I mean, it, it, can, it can be escape, but it also can be engagement. I mean, there are designers, I think, like Helmut Lang or Raph Simmons or, or Vivian Westwood in her punk days or designers who, who aren't about escape. They're about direct engagement with, um, with your time, with your environment. Um, mm. And... I mean, it, that's still a kind of, that, that, that still is all about desire. I mean, fashion's number one, fashion's linchpin is human desire. Um, and that, that will always be there. I, I could see if, you know, I've been saying for a long time in a sort of half-joking way, but you could almost see how it would happen now. Um, designers as part of the sustainability debate, um, which has been kind of, um, honing itself over the last couple of years, a lot of designers talk about, not a lot, but a few designers talk about localization Mm. and, um, you know, like Jean Tuitou was saying from, from APC was saying the other day that, you know, ship something from Shanghai to Madagascar to have it made for 25 cents less. I mean, that's untenable. That's ridiculous. That's that, that you're getting into sort of, you're getting into not just greed, but human rights abuses and all sorts of nonsense at that point. And so you need a recalibration, an ethical recalibration for sure, but localization will make things a lot more expensive mm. to have things produced locally. Mm. Um, it's one of I the worries. Think- it's one of the things I w- have been worried about 
with this discussion around shop local in New Zealand is that uh, I think that for a lot of things is actually a bit of a luxury, especially when we do talk about, you know, you said the difference between fashion and clothes. I think a lot of small boutique fashion brands that do make locally, they're not cheap. They're not easily accessible by a lot of people. But then you need to, what, what will have to happen, what has to happen is a re-education for, for people about why things cost what they cost. Mm. And they cost what they cost because they're being made by one person. You know, this whole, this whole restoring the sort of dignity of labor to mm. people. And I know that's one thing that, that, you know, trying to do that with sweatshops in Bangladesh is, is just remind people that there are human beings behind this one pound bikini that you just bought. Mm. Um, you need to, you need to remind people of why things educate people and why things cost what they cost. Um, you need to completely refresh the notion of value. What is valuable? You need to um, also impress on people, I think, the idea of preciousness, that what you buy isn't disposable. What you buy is something you and if it costs more, maybe you value it more, you cherish it, you pass it on. There's a sort of, a, there's a sort of innate circularity in that. that the, I mean, I look at somebody like Gabriella Hurst in New York. Um, yeah, she's lucky she has, her family has sheep farms in Uruguay, so she can use wool from her own farm and there's circularity there. But, but um, you know, dead stock, we have, this, this is, this is, this is, this is what the debate was before the coronavirus crisis, but dead stock and, um, and remnants and, and the number of designers who are, who are working, who were working on that, going to mills in Italy. Um, uh, you know, it was interesting, like a, it's interesting a year or so ago, the mills would say, yeah, take it. And mm. now of course they realize there's a value in all of that. So now they're selling it. It's all become it's all become competitive. It's competitive in a good cause, I suppose. But um, you can the 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 sort of where where we are where we are now because of uh, in many ways because of our throwaway culture, and you know that to just remind people of of the way our parents were. Um, you know, even people who made their own clothes, well, in New Zealand, I mean, my mum made her own clothes. Um, uh, my mum made most of my clothes when I was going to school. Yeah, <laughs> I, my mum made my first um, tropical print shirt mm -hmm. when I was, I guess, 16 or something, and I went and bought the fabric and she made me a shirt. Um, and that's where it all started. Uh, but... You know, when you think about it, she also made all the condiments in the house. You know, it's, it's astonishing that she made ketchup. I'm, I'm, I mean, you say to people that my mum used to make our ketchup and they're like, Ooh. Did she um, work at Waddy's? No. No, she made ketchup. <laughs> no, that's what they would say to you. What, she oh, worked no, at Heinz? I mean, no, I don't mean, I don't mean, <laughs> you, I'm not, I think a lot of people, there's, that's what, that's what 
it is impressing New Zealand, impressing people about New Zealand right now. What the way New Zealand, the way that Jacinda Ahern has worked with the and the government has worked with the crisis, the the, the um, determination and the and the you know just the resolve and the way that the people will comply. Um, New Zealand is a role model in times of crisis. It's not the first time it's happened that there's been articles about New Zealand's incredible um, response to to catastrophe. Um, but but you know this is the self reliance thing I'm talking about. That 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 we I I I imagine a time talking about localization. I go beyond that. I was calling it villaging, mm. and and I think villaging seems too smart for me to make up. Somebody else must have said it at some point, and it's stuck in my mind. Where you would have a dressmaker, a, a tailor, and a cobbler, and that's who you would, you know, like almost like a little Eastern European idea, isn't it? Mm. You would, and that's where you would go. And that was your fashion and, industry in in a hundred years or so mm. from now. And and there will be security will be taken care of by a, lo- a local warlord. And um, I mean, London is a lot of little villages. When you live in London, you, you're very, very aware of the fact you live in a village. Um, and our little village has become even more of a little village. And, mm. Because, you know, we go to our, we see the same people queuing for bread every day and we go to the supermarket and it's the same people queuing outside the supermarket, outside the vegetable shop, or there's no queue outside the liquor stores, thank goodness. Mm. So we bought all their sake. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for how not only in this moment it's bringing everyone closer together, but it should make industries tighter, possibly smaller, things more transparent. People should be able to see those moving parts and, like you said, value them and put a cost to them and appreciate that cost and not go, oh, no, I'll go down the road or get it, you know, half as cheap and I'll get twice as many of them, you know. It's going to be on sale or it's going to be on sale online. Now Mm. that's another challenge. Mm. That's online retailers. That's another challenge. That that independent designers and independent stores are going to need to create some kind of uh, supportive um, group uh, where they will where they will need to be the ones who um, who reeducate customers. Mm. You know, when you think about what we look, if we think think about the the giant, the beer moths, the industry beer moths that we're looking at, and these ludicrous schedules where it's midwinter, you want to buy a winter coat, you go to a store and it's all bathing suits. Mm. If you, why why did that ever happen? How did that how did that ludicrous calendar ever impose itself on the fashion industry? American department stores. And look what's happening to them. Mm. So, you know, uh, there is a sort of, there's an opportunity here to recalibrate the calendar. And I think if you, I think if, you know, if just the average person probably tunes out of fashion when they go to a store because it's getting cold. Oh, I want a coat. I want a jacket. And they only find bathing suits. You know, I don't know what it's like in New Zealand, but it's sure as hell is like that here. Selfridges, you know, you can go in there and it's like snowing, and you know, the thing you'll find is a little cotton chemise. It's um, definitely, it's definitely that way here. I think more so because the industry expects that you know their autumn product gets and in, goes into stores in February, and their spring product yeah. goes into stores in August. 
And that alone, I mean, August is a terrible month in New Zealand, slushy and windy and cold, you know, and everyone's, you know, there's still a lot of boots and beanies and jeans and knitwear and things being sold then. So let them be sold. Let people buy that product. Well, I think, I think with what's happening now is it looks like if, if fall is shipped, if autumn clo- if the autumn season is shipped, it will be shipped in autumn. Mm. And that, that will be, you know, let's just see what happens then. Let's a great just, recalibration. Yeah, let's just see because by that time, online retailers will, will already have slashed the prices on all that merchandise. Mm. So there's going to be a war here. Um, which is going to be, you know, because they're all in trouble anyway. Mm. And they're going to need to, they're not going to be towing the line, you know, for the rest of the industry. It's going to, they, it, it just depends. If, it just depends who has the every man for himself attitude about this and mm. whether, whether people can actually pull together to make a new reality, you know, mm. for the fashion industry where it potentially would have a chance to survive um, that, that is, that is going to be, that is going to be really, really interesting. I think to see whether mm. that happens or not. Well, Tim, this has been a fantastic chat. We're at an, just over an hour. <laughs> we'll, wrap, we'll wrap it up, but, um, that's a great point to finish on actually. And I think it probably comes back to the beginning about how there will be certain media commentators, designers, fashion houses, industry leaders that people will look to not to say how do we do it now but for some guidance and enthusiasm and encouragement that we can the industry can operate in a better more sustainable more transparent way with more value um, with more magic I love that that word that you used before because there's a lot of magic in fashion and I think we've probably lost a bit of that with the speed and the consumption uh, and the driving down of price so I think you will be an important player in that conversation. You already are, but I think people like you and the Business of Fashion platform will be incredibly uh, instrumental in how that we recreate and recalibrate the industry around the world. So thank you so much for sharing your time today and your insights and your amazing wit and memories. It's been magic. Oh, so, Murray, thank you. I was just going to say you have so much faith in me. You have so much confidence in me to stick around when I might just be running a surf shack <laughs> on 90 Mile Beach. Or, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, I think this is why we have to record people like you now, Tim, to share those <laughs> memories and thoughts and ideas and inspirations for the rest of it. And, and all of those books that you've been writing and that you will continue to write, we'll all go out and buy them because that's how we can relive oh, the memories of oh, what you've seen. You know, just imagine if publishers, I mean, will publishers continue to publish them? This is, a, this is the interesting thing. I'm very, um, I'm very, uh, these, these are such early days in this whole thing. Mm. I, I, I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen. So, mm. um, day by know, day. Yeah, day, it really is, that, well, hour by hour. Mm. So, um, thank you, Murray. And, um, and keep up your good work too, because it's, it really is people like you who, who, um, keep the industry humming along people whose passion and commitment go above and beyond above and beyond personal interests so my, na- my naive optimism i'll keep fueling that great i'm a big <laughs> believer in naivety i really am good it's a shield thank you tim have a wonderful thank day you, in london go out and buy okay. some fresh bread social distance 
And, I'm going to uh, do my 12,000 step walk now. Good man. I do a 12,000 step power walk. <laughs> Every day? Every day. I, I, I literally haven't done a tap of exercise for the last 20 or 30 years. So this is a whole new world for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, positive changes. That's yes. what we're all about in okay. coronavirus times. And then home for a flagon of sake. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, Tim. thanks. All right. We'll talk again. Thanks so okay. much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That was the latest from Fashion and Focus. Thanks for tuning in and being a part of our conversation. If you want more, make sure you subscribe to get a fresh episode in your inbox every week. Check out more of our episodes on your favourite podcast feed and get in touch with us at fashionandfocus.com at showroom22.com.